I'm Evelyn Lee. And I'm Janine Chastain. We're collaborating on curated conversations to explore how the industry is changing. Together, we'll find ways to create new solutions to current challenges while elevating the value of architects. Welcome Welcome to to Practice Practice Disrupted. Disrupted. Hi, listeners. Hello, Janine. Hey, Evelyn. Hey, listeners. So our next guest, Leah Alyssa Bear, is the founder of EVS Studio, and she's actually been on several podcasts recently. We'll probably go ahead and post those in the show notes. But she's been talking more specifically about how she founded her firm, and we are a little bit more interested in doing a deep dive on what it takes to run a successful virtual practice, which is what EVS Studio is. And this was a decision that she made long before we found ourselves in our current situation with COVID. So I'm kind of interested in what insight she can give anyone who may be looking to transition to a remote firm on a more permanent basis. I'm glad we're dedicating an episode to remote working because I know this has been a big topic this year. And a lot of teams have been faced with navigating an unprecedented time and transitioning design studios or their design teams into a remote workforce. We've invited Leah because she's been running a virtual practice for a while now, and I think she has a lot of great lessons to share about how to navigate even some of the hiccups that come with transitioning into a virtual practice model. And I first met Leah when she was running the AI Silicon Valley conference. Um, It was called Architectural Intelligence. And she was also very active with the Women in Architecture Committee there. Since she's launched her design studio and has been building her virtual practice and managing a growing team of designers. So here's Leah's official bio. Leah Alyssa Bear, AIA, NCARB, Lead GA, is founder and managing director of the architecture startup EVS Studio. First registered in 2017 in California, Leah is licensed to practice in California, Hawaii, and Washington State, and is based out of home offices in Palo Alto, California, and Bellingham, Washington, while EVS Studio serves clients throughout the Pacific States. A true multidisciplinarian, Leah received her Bachelor of Architecture with an aerospace-centric thesis, a minor in fine arts, and her Bachelor of Science four years of structural engineering from Cal Poly San Luis Obispo in 2014. Equally passionate about serving as a leader in practice for her profession, as she is to her firm, Leah is dedicated to volunteer work. She is the AIA Silicon Valley Treasurer and incoming Vice President for 2021, Founding Chair of the AIA Silicon Valley Practice Leadership Committee, Founding Co-Chair of the Architectural Intelligence Conference that Janine just mentioned, Advisor to the AIA National Center for Practice, and Chair of the NCARB Experience Advisory Committee. An EVS studio isn't your traditional architecture firm. They're an award-winning, 100% women-led virtual team of diverse professionals spread across the country who are passionate about creating exceptional living spaces for everyone. From extra space for a growing family to a vibrant showroom for a new business, healthy, affordable housing, or luxurious getaway, whatever it is, EVS got you covered with their commitment to outstanding service and design. They believe buildings should look great, feel great, and do things for our communities. 
Let's cut to the interview. So Leah, we're really glad to have you here. Uh, Why don't you give our listeners just a really quick introduction about yourself? So my name is Leah Bayer, and I am the founder and managing director of Evia Studio, which is um, an interdisciplinary uh, virtual architecture firm, and currently based out of Bellingham, Washington, but sort of pop around and practice all along the West Coast, which is granted to me by virtue of it being virtual. How big is Evia right now? Well, that's a tricky question to answer. (laughs) There's technically five of us on our team and currently actually have an active uh, job ad out for another couple project managers. And we work collaboratively with a couple other firms. So we sort of have this extended firm size when we're working on those joint projects together. So it's fun where we get to stay small, but also act big when the project demands it. So you mentioned that you are a virtual practice. So I think, you know, I even I've even seen in forums recently that there are some practices, especially those in the small and medium sized categories that are really considering what would it be like to continue to work the way we are today due to COVID. But you started a virtual practice from the onset well before any of this happened. So what was your thought process behind kind of why why you felt the need to do that, I guess? Yeah, it's, it's funny answering that now because now the answer is quite obvious. Uh, but thinking back on why it started that way, I think it was really a combination of a bunch of different factors and forces that all culminated to this is what makes the most sense for me. Um, At the time, I was currently commuting four hours plus a day myself, living in the middle of the peninsula and driving up to San Francisco every day uh, for my job. And that was insanity. Uh, I was just tired, tired of spending so much time in the car. Um, I was also heavily involved in the Women in Architecture Committee at my local AIA chapter. And over and over again, hearing stories of uh, women in practice had heard so many challenges for people juggling, you know, trying to live a very robust, full personal life in conjunction with their professional life. And the expectation of this sort of studio culture and being in an office 24 hours a day doesn't really work very well when you're trying to have a family or grow yourself personally in other ways. And it just didn't make sense. And I don't have a family yet, but I'm headed in that route. So, you know, I thought about what does my future look like in this car four hours a day in an office that demands me to be in a seat 24 hours a day. Is that really sustainable? Is it something I want to do? In addition to that, I actually had experience at a previous uh, job where I managed a medical practice, which seems like it's totally unrelated. Uh, But they were very traditional, had you know, paper charts and had to go through the process of transitioning into this uh, electronic health record system. That's when I was there. And it was this big, huge undertaking, uh, but the result let us think about what is the future of medical practice look like and are there different ways that we can do things there. And so a result of that exploration, we actually went to uh, cloud-supported tools and got rid of our server in-house and went to a cloud server, uh, went with a platform that was more web-based, and it had 
such a really like exciting and unexpected result for all of the team feeling much more free and untethered and they had more flexibility for example to keep up on their charting when they were at home um, people were a lot more productive and there was a huge amount of like overhead reduced we cut expenses like crazy so i think the like history that i have there and then my current dissatisfaction with spending so much time sitting in a car and then hearing stories about what my future was going to be like as like a mother practicing in architecture it just seemed like we have these tools available to us it's insane to not do this it just it didn't seem like there was any other real choice at that point it just made so much sense you know most architecture firms would be hesitant to go all virtual they would likely have some concerns because of, you know, the nature of the business. And I know one of the unique things about you is that you have a very savvy mind for operational thinking in terms of an organization. So what what was your thought process regarding being able to make an architecture studio work in a virtual practice setting? You know, it, for me, it may be that for my mind, it didn't seem like much of a jump. Because most of what we do in architecture studios now is done on computers. And knowing that that information doesn't have to be stored locally, it can be stored virtually. But then there, there's not much of a difference in terms of how you work and where you store your files and how you communicate and what you're doing. I mean, everything is on a computer and commu computers can be anywhere. Um, so my, my thought process, there wasn't a lot of barriers. <laughs> I don't know if that's answering the question um, in the way that you were wanting to get at. Uh, but, you know, there was certainly a lot of extra thought put into it as it relates more to managing people and culture and innovation. But the operational part of it just seemed like a pretty easy translation from what we were doing plugged into a screen and sitting at a desk at a computer in an office to doing the same thing in your home. Right. I, I agree with that observation. And I think as someone who also has worked in an office environment like that, it does seem like most of the younger staff are just sitting at computers all day long. And so I agree that in some regards, it's not really different being at home sitting behind a computer than it is being in the office sitting behind a computer. Yes, face-to-face -face communication is important, but Honestly, in a given week, for me, that didn't happen quite that much. Sometimes when I was like working on Revit, really, it just happened very rarely, uh, yeah. especially around deadlines. I sat at, um, at, in an open office in a large architecture firm in San Francisco, and literally the two people sitting next to me and the person behind me, when we were having a conversation, didn't even turn their heads to talk to me. We talked on Skype. So I would get an instant message popping up from my colleague who's to the right of me and just look at her like, really? <laughs> so, I think we're just so plugged in and used to having that engagement that even being next to each other in person, that started to slip away quite a bit. When I was at MK Think, actually, we had a, there's a row of programmers because we had an innovation part of our studio. And yeah, they were just talking to each other constantly on on Skype, and they like literally, it was five of them all on all in a row. Yep. Um, and they were, I would say, they were a mix of like Gen X and Gen Y too. So it was 
definitely on the younger side. But yeah, I saw that happening in practice as well. And you mentioned culture earlier. So I want to come back to that idea, because I think maybe one hesitation for people would be the concern around building firm culture. So how do you manage that in your virtual practice? Yeah, it's been really important from the get-go. I think what I've been hearing a lot from uh, people who have been forced to work from home is that that's been a real challenge and that they want to go back into the office because they feel like there's so much missing and they feel disconnected and a lack of culture. And that's totally understandable when you have a company that wasn't set up to support virtual culture. I mean, it is something that you have to understand and plan for um, from the get-go, that you're not going to be able to depend on having this in-person connection and lean on that, that you have to be very intentional about setting up a culture and making it clear and transparent. So for us as a team, it was important to me that we build that together. I had an idea in mind of what I wanted, and I started to hire people who fit that. But then there was a point where now it's not just me picking and choosing these people, it's, it's an us. And so we've ca- I've brought it to this point and we need to carry it on into the future. So everything that we do is transparent. Um, that's one of the benefits of being virtual is everything's out there online for everyone to look at. You can lock things down and make things private, but we don't. So uh, literally everything is available for people to see. And we have frequent conversations about um, our future, our values, our vision. Uh, we're in our, what is this, two and a half years? So it's still pretty young and we're still building a lot. But the beginning of this year, we were fortunate enough that we got together in person to have our very first strategic planning kickoff to start an in-depth process of building culture as a team. And so from there, we've had multiple different exercises uh, and plans where we have been continuing to to expand on what those decisions were. Um, The most recent was an exercise where we started committing to uh, values and commitments for the firm. Um, So it's a a group activity. Uh, All of that is placed prominently in our hub for people to refer back to and reference. Um, Every decision we make, we try to refer back to what our values are uh, as we're growing and evolving as a company. We also have pretty like honest and transparent conversations. We talk about both the good and the bad. Uh, It's important for us to feel like we're human and we can relate to each other. I think giving flexibility inherently allows for a certain level of culture in a firm, a virtual firm environment. So people feel comfortable to say like, hey, I'm taking a personal day. Um, I'm not going to be around for the rest of the day. And that's that's totally fine. And then we have uh, built-in feedback loops, typical things that you do as a firm uh, where you request uh, that your staff tell you how you're doing and how you can evolve and change. I think that's pretty normal. But there are some specific things that we have implemented this year that are really working very well because uh, we did have some challenges as a group when we got together in person that we were concerned about. So Some of those are group activities. I think it's pretty common right now to do virtual happy hours, and those have been a lot of fun. We get to know each other on a different level. Um, No work, no work discussion at all, just having a great time with each other. And we try to bring in a guest uh, each time we do it so that we get sort of more uh, camaraderie and learning about people and expanding our network, that sort of thing. We also are starting a group exercise class. (laughs) We'll see how that goes. We have been doing 
um, group exercise challenges with quarterly winners, and that's been a lot of fun. But now we're going to start exercising together. Um, so Kate on our team is going to be hosting group yoga, uh, I think, once a month. So that's exciting. Another thing, too, is that we have this idea of mutual mentorship. Uh, and so we invest a lot in educating one another. And uh, as a virtual company, that's been almost easier because we're all able to access that education and participate together. So there's not really this need for one person passing information down to another in an office setting. It's sort of like a we have a, a pool, a Slack channel where anyone can request education. And then we as a group schedule a session for us to either train each other uh, with what we know or bring in somebody else um, or sign each other up for sort of a group covered activity. Um, so there's a lot that we actually can do to build culture in a different way that you wouldn't necessarily be allowed to do in a, in a physical setting that I've really enjoyed. Just hearing a lot of what you've set up and the word that the fact that you use the word intentionally in several, several times over that, I, um, over the course of kind of describing building culture virtually, I think is, is really key to how that is done successfully. I feel like a lot of, especially if you're starting in person, people tend to be like, you know, this will happen and come together very organically, right? Um, we'll just like, hey, does anyone want to go for a happy hour? It's much more kind of spur of the moment. I almost feel like the intentionality is back to the day where, you know, I didn't have text message. So you like, if you wanted to go to the movies with your friends at night, you needed to coordinate all of that in advance and earlier <laughs> during the day. So you actually all showed up for the movie later on. Um, but anyways, it, it was just interesting to me that like your your processes just have to be that much more structured in a way to build the organic culture virtually. Yeah, definitely. And it is kind of a tricky balance between not wanting it to feel like, you know, your typical, like, let's get together and have a corporate retreat full of structured icebreakers. You know, there has to be that organic group decision and evolution um, and flexibility. But I think having thoughtfulness put into a foundation to allow those things to happen uh, is the right mix. And sometimes we get it right and everything's wonderful and sometimes it falls flat and we have to reevaluate. But I think the, the point is that we're paying attention to it um, and trying to find things that work for everybody. So yeah, definitely being intentional is a factor of what you have to do as a virtual firm, but also I think can have the result if you do it of creating better culture overall. I had um, a question for you. So one of the feedback that I'm getting a lot from principals is the ability to, to train like the emerging professional, right? And I think there, for some reason in our head, and it's funny that you and Janine even just said, like you would go weeks on and just sitting in front of the computer doing Revit, but people have it in their mind, right? Like that there's this notion that training an individual means if they have a question, I'm just sitting on the other side of the wall so they can tap me on the shoulder and ask the question or, or I can be walking by their desk and seeing, I don't know, seeing they're doing a red line wrong or something. So what, I guess, what is your response to that and kind of bringing up a recent grad in this type of environment? Yeah, I hear that also. I think, you know, you're, 
you're familiar with what you know and what you experienced. And sometimes it's hard to see how something might work differently. So firm principles are like, well, this is the way that I was trained and it was really valuable to me, which was, I'm sure, certainly true. And so feeling like their staff are going to miss out on that can be a challenge um, and seem like a large barrier. It's important to let go of the way that you had done things, I think, and try to consider how might we do things differently for a generation that maybe doesn't necessarily respond even anymore to that way of learning. Um, and, and that's hard. But, you know, training and bringing in a new intern, we had an intern over the summer. Uh, and it, it, it really wasn't that hard. I mean, they're in, they're plugged into our system. Again, they have uh, access to everything that we're working on. Um, everything we do together is done in a setting where we're screen sharing our work and talking about our work together. Uh, in Slack, they have access to the entire staff. And so that's one thing that's quite different is if you need to ask a question, you don't have to depend on somebody being right next to you because I mean, I've been in firms where the principals weren't around or they were just too busy. And so on one end, they may think that they're providing better mentorship by being physically present and leaning on just that physical presence. Again, not necessarily having to have an intentional program of mentorship and depending on that organic thing happening where it doesn't really happen as often as it, it truly probably should or need to. So by not being able to depend on, oh, you know, Sarah is just right there. She can come to me if she needs me. I have to think, Sarah needs this support. What do I need to provide? Uh, you know, what system do we need to give for her? What access does she need to have? Uh, and, and plan that out for her. So it's fundamentally different. I think it's really hard to get people to shift and think differently about how to provide that sort of mentorship and education, but we've done it quite well. So I have bi-weekly meetings with my team. Um, we have career development planning boards that we do together. We've recently started doing Loom videos and building up a library, educating each other on how to do certain things because it's a lot easier to just perform the action and record what you're doing and send that to somebody. Um, and we're always all available to each other. And I think that speaks back to also culture is that everybody loves that you can just ping somebody and say, hey, you're really good at this thing. Can you help me with this? And then they can respond whenever they're available, but that interaction has been enacted and the engagement happens on everyone's own terms. So there's always an opportunity to request help or mentorship and it can always happen because there's, you know, there's a record there that allows people to do it when it works best for them. So I, I love it. People have enjoyed it. And yeah, the younger generations are sort of used to using tech. So fortunately, it's an environment that I think that they feel very comfortable with. I can relate to what you're saying a lot. I mean, I, I do think it's an issue of comfort in some ways. I mean, there is value sometimes in getting together and watching someone draw something in person. But ultimately, I think it comes down to comfort with the tools and like being able to be adaptable and flexible in order to like try it differently because you can still have communication in different ways it doesn't always have to be face to face yeah and I think people might maybe dismiss me or my company and think oh she's young it's a bunch of young kids but one of my team members is 
in her 60s, let's put it that way. And yeah, she had some resistance to being able to not hand draw things. And we said, okay, print stuff, redline it, and whatever works well for you. But after about a year of working in this virtual environment, she has fully embraced the tools, loves working in Bluebeam. We'll just screen share with whoever needs help and mark things up and walk them through a set of plans just like you would in person. So just just take, I think, a growth mindset and a willingness to adopt new tools and to work in a different way. Um, but there are certainly so many tools available for us to do this really well. And I don't want you to sell your short, yourself short either, right? I think following the pandemic, there will inevitably be people who are more agile and adapt to this way of working. And when we're back into a competitive market and I'm hiring for, or you're hiring for a project manager and all things being equal, somebody says you have to come into the office and somebody says you can work at your own pace, get the job done or a virtual practice, then, then they're probably going to go with a virtual practice. So um, if it's not a competitive advantage now, I think it's definitely a competitive advantage in the future when it comes to talent. Absolutely. And then just not being restricted to your local area. I mean, there are a lot of advantages to um, hiring and retaining staff and growing the right team, for sure. So Leah, how do you innovate in a virtual practice? Um, what has been great about being a virtual firm is that we do have really low overhead. You know, our, our costs are quite minimal. And what that allows me to do is invest in exploration um, and those things that are not necessarily billable. I can take what we might be spending on rent and utilities and invest that in somebody and their ideas uh, and test things out and pay for our team to try out uh, new systems and uh, design strategies, uh, platforms, whatever it might be. So we're constantly doing that, which is <laughs> I have to be I have to be a little more careful and make sure that we're not going over that threshold. But so far, so good. And as a new company, I think inherently you're going to be trying out and testing out new things. Um, you know, we do things like reevaluate lessons learned, which I think is quite typical after every project. Document that and implement on our next. Um, but we're also doing things like constantly testing out new platforms. Uh, I hired a friend of mine who is not an architect who's done no architecture in her life has no idea <laughs> about the industry at all or anything about architecture but she's a software engineer and it's clear that we're moving in a direction where that's a very very valuable asset on a team both from you know the modeling end but also from an automation standpoint so for me i'm always thinking about ways that we can be even more efficient and um, you know, reduce out the redundancies of, of tasks that humans don't actually need to perform. And so bringing Kyle on, we've been able to bring in new platforms and new automations that are even further streamlining that process. So we can focus on the two things that are most important, which are the genuine engagement with our clients that we love to have, and then just doing really awesome design, you know, being more innovative in the design sphere. So by virtue of not spending money on a, a physical space, we, you know, we have opportunity to do a lot of really different fun things. Yeah, and it's interesting to me, like, again, that kind of testing out things is inherent to the culture. So I think it, it builds ability to to innovate in, in a lot of different ways, right? Not just 
operations and process and um, automations, but also kind of on the more the more creative end. Talk to me a little bit about like about trying platforms. So for instance, I know you were going through through testing out a different whiteboarding platform for a while and figuring out what works best for you. So just I'm sure there's definitely some firms that have settled into one or another, but you know, just for a firm that's still trying to figure it out and trying like how how did you set that up and and how did you ultimately decide how to move forward? So for that one and for a few different adoptions, we identified somebody on the team who happens to be Victoria, who's really our like tech champion. Um, she enjoys researching and understanding technologies. And so we tasked her, or I really tasked her, to start looking into what are the options available and bring to the table some of the pros and cons and let's pick the top two or three. And we do that, we get together, and then we just plan out, okay, we're going we're gonna to play with this one for the next few weeks or so and see how it goes. And just sort of work through that process. So many platforms have free trials, so it makes it pretty easy to test things out. Um, and it doesn't have to be anything intense, you know, just during a group meeting, let's look at a project together, throw it into this whiteboard and sketch on it as a group and see how it feels, see if it feels like something that we're comfortable with or that makes sense or enhances our workflow. I think that's a huge one. A lot of, uh, a lot of people adopt tools because there are tools to adopt. I think that then we have the tendency of spending more time managing tools than allowing those tools to help us manage the work that we're really supposed to be doing, which is architecture. <laughs> so it feels like it's cool, but maybe we're spending more time on the thing than the thing is allowing us to spend on our projects, then it's not right for us. So ultimately, in the case of the whiteboards, we tested a few out and they had some pretty great features. But what we found for us is a simple screen markup tool was more efficient than having a whiteboard. So we use a simple Epic, I think it's called Epic Pen, um, that you just pull up and you can sketch on your screen, take snapshots, draw like arrows, circles, text, whatever. It's quite flexible. Um, take a snapshot and send it to whoever it needs to go to and leave it at that. Um, we, we found we didn't actually need a, a whiteboard that was permanent. We had other places where those things were living. So it's, it's um, you know, it's, it's going through testing out different things, evaluating the pros and cons, what we like about it, but then ultimately deciding is, is this more efficient? Does this enhance what we're trying to do better? And if not, then it's just not worth it. I like the approach you, you take. And actually, I've, I've been even one that like has gone in the deep end when it comes to testing things like, oh, if we're going to test this out, we have to be fully committed to doing this for the course of a project. So it's just kind of nice to hear that, like, there's just like test it out at a high level. Um, but also, even if you've worked on it, I think you and I have talked that even if you've worked on a software pro like for a year, it's also it's all it's also okay to switch because right. technology is moving so quickly. Um, there's new there's new offerings coming out um, so quickly. Like, like there there may be a company out there that we don't know that two years from now could accelerate everything that you're doing. Um, so it's definitely worth like checking out. Yeah, there is a little bit of anxiety and feeling like it's okay to let go of a thing. And I think also 
there are some team members that may feel like they're in adoption overload and too many things, right? And that's fair. If that's the case, then we try to just work on it as a smaller team with those that are more comfortable and then roll it out to the larger group to say, hey, how does this feel? Um, so I, yeah, I think being flexible, letting things go, testing out is really important, but then there are some really big choices that you can't necessarily do that with, right? So like your modeling platform is a big investment. There's a lot of education that goes into that. Um, same with what we just adopted for a full like project and pra practice management system. So there's a little bit more that needs to go in the investment there. But if you think about the return on investment of adopting something that's that robust, uh, it's it's well worth the time to to spend. So I've heard you talk about the whiteboard and Slack. And then, of course, I know you're doing virtual meetings with your team. What are other ways that you're collaborating to ensure that that communication is happening within your virtual practice? So the biggest one that we just adopted is monday.com. Um, it was sort of the piece that was missing, which was tying all of our communications together in a way that allowed us to take real action on our work um, and also layer in a level of automation. So we really enjoyed working in Slack. We really enjoyed having documents that we can collaborate on in Google Drive. You know, somebody doesn't have to own it. It's everybody's. We can all work together, as you know, you use it too. Um, but having a space where we have more accountability to one another as we grow has been something we recognize as a challenge. We don't want to stay small forever. And so if we're going to continue to grow our team, there needs to be a better way for people to sort of group off and build mini teams and manage what's happening happening within those and have that speak to the overall larger portfolio and picture, which is what I need to focus my, my time on. So this was a sort of a challenging process. There's a lot of project management platforms out there. They all do some things really well, and there are different reasons for people choosing which one they want to use. And I think the biggest drawback to Monday is that it is really uh, robust and flexible and does have the opportunity to build in anything that you really want. I mean, it's you can build it out the way that you want, but you have to know what you want to build and you have to take the time to actually do that. So it's been quite an investment to get it built up, but it is really transformed the way that we work together um, and also with our extended teams. You know, I mentioned that we're working with other firms on projects. The opportunity to have something that doesn't require somebody to download a new app um, has been important. And so we can invite people into the space, into the board, and it can connect with whatever sort of platform they use to manage their own work. Uh, but it gives us the flexibility to sort of grow and expand uh, to those additional uh, architecture teams, as well as our consultants, that sort of thing. So it's looking at what might be scalable uh, as we grow from five people to 50 people to 500 people. So again, it's those particular platforms that will stay with you for a long time that are the foundation of your business take a little bit more thought in, and investment in. I really appreciate hearing you say that because that, to me, I'm hearing two really important things out of this conversation. Um, one being setting up processes because it's going to help you in the long run. So flag that one in your moleskin, everybody. And then two, I heard you talking about uh, eliminating uh, inefficiencies in your work. So things that you can um, 
you know, expedite so that the work is focused on where it matters most. That's gold. I love that you said that. Um, is there anything that your practice struggles with um, being entirely virtual? Yeah, you know, I, I think it's pretty obvious that like loneliness is a challenge. I think we're all feeling that. I had a, a former colleague of mine call me this afternoon and just lament not being able to get together over the desk or grab a beer together. And it's hard. Um, I think those moments like the virtual happy hour or exercising together help. Uh, but it's it's just something that we have to adapt to. Those in-person meetings are really critical for us. So we're struggling contemplating what we're going to do that typically would happen in December and January. And we're just not comfortable at this point doing that. So we're trying to find some things that we can do as groups to resolve that loneliness. Uh, but I think allowing people to be flexible with their time, take time off, spend time with family, do what they need to do with their contacts that are close to them to sort of ease that loneliness is, is more helpful than trying to find ways for us to spend more time on Zoom meetings together. Um, so that is, that's a challenge. Uh, I used to joke that pointing, pointing is really hard. <laughs> like that's a random thing that you can't do. Um, and clients try all the time in a meeting. Like, can you see what I'm pointing at? No, you know, I can't. <laughs> so that was, that is still a, a, a bit of a struggle. Um, <laughs> uh, but yeah, I, I think just the, like, the organic, the thing that we talked about before, those organic moments that happen um, when you're next to somebody or you overhear somebody talking about a thing, even though you can follow conversations on Slack, it's different. There's a bit of magic that's missing there. Um, one thing that was a challenge, and I think it's less of a challenge, is the legitimacy of a virtual firm. Uh, I think before COVID, both clients and other architects or consultants would sort of question whether or not you're real. <laughs> Are you a real company? Um, you know, are you actually a professional? Are you doing good work? Are you some like sketchy, unknown human in a basement? But that's changed. You know, a lot of people, I think, are seeing that it's possible to work from home. So I'm hoping that that discrimination, <laughs> I don't know the right word, against a virtual practice not being like a real professional um, entity will go away a little bit more. I think it'll still be there, but the type of clients we want to work with are probably the type of clients that embrace evolution, innovation, and change anyway. So if they're not comfortable with it, there's there's plenty of other firms that they can work with in person. But yeah, that was definitely a bit of a challenge, not having an address that people can stop by. Is the loneliness part of it a subset of like just the epidemic we're going through now, or is that something that is present in just in a virtual practice in general? It's definitely exacerbated because there's so much that's going on that people are having a hard time handling and like need people around to talk to and commiserate with. Um, but it was there before that, you know, it was something that came up in a retreat that there is this thing missing, a physical presence missing. You can, you know, you feel differently when somebody is next to you and it's really great to be able to see each other on a screen and talk to each other in that way. But, you don't feel their presence with you or that warmth. Um, and so, yeah, it, it's, it's there. It's the nature of a virtual practice. Uh, I'm hoping that the balance, like I said, of being able to sort of spend your time and not expect that your 
your work in your business is where you should be satisfying that loneliness and that you can take care of that with your community and your family and your friends um, with more flexibility to spend on those things will sort of shift where we're depending on having that connection. Because if you think about it, you spend more time in an office with your colleagues than you do with friends and family and anyone else. And that, I don't think that's how it should be. So maybe we'll see that change over time, but it, it is a challenge. What about, so for instance, I know as, as the company that I work for is growing and is now a remote first company, there are only certain states that people can move to because you have to establish an entity there or, you know, you as an owner have to pay state taxes to multiple different states if you have company in different states. So, so pragmatically, like how has that made it more difficult um, maintaining a virtual practice? And it's more complicated. I just like got through registering my business again in Washington. (laughs) So having to track and manage all of that is complicated. Uh, I hope as we grow, I'll be able to invest in, somebody who manages those things. But to me, the benefit outweighs those challenges. It's just sort of an operational like housekeeping thing. And the cost of paying state taxes in different areas or registering your business in different states or licenses is significantly less than, you know, the cost of rent and utilities, as we said. So yeah, it's, it's a pain. Um, You have to take good records and keep on on track of when all of those things need to be done. But as I gonna say, I know a few firm leaders who can't even keep track of like their reciprocal licenses to different <laughs> states, let alone what states they should probably be paying state they taxes in for virtual to... practice. <laughs> <laughs> there are tools to take care of that for you. <laughs> yeah, um, you know, <laughs> keep good records. And if you can't, then hire somebody that will do that for you. <laughs> that <would be> my <laughs> recommendation. So I think you've talked a lot about the different benefits from a hiring standpoint, from, you know, from everything that you mentioned as to why you started a virtual practice in the first place. And I, and I hope you actually see some of those motherhood benefits when you reach that stage in your in your life. Are there any other benefits that like just may not be as obvious that people might be overlooking or, or not considering one thing that wasn't um, obvious to us was the level of resiliency of a virtual practice. I mean, nobody knew that this year was going to happen and it's been chaos, but our business has essentially continued uninterrupted. Um, so I think having a more decentralized system, investing in, in people and building up their strengths and allowing people to work autonomously and then just having this sort of very flexible connectivity between one another really prepares you for taking on a lot of changes in the world. You know, the physical world may go through a lot of, I I don't even know what, (laughs) who knows what to expect coming next, but you know, we're, we're still able to come together and continue working and take care of both those challenges, personal challenges and our own work. So that was definitely a really um, important benefit. There are a lot of practices that have severely struggled in a lot of different ways. And we're fortunate that that didn't happen. 
Um, so I couldn't say that I predicted that, and that's why I started the virtual firm. But it definitely has been really beneficial. Well, I think it's just really interesting to me to see that you were out ahead of the curve, you know, and it's a great example of like when you dig your heels in and you're so resistant to being open to trying something. I mean, I know studios where people asked for remote work for years and and partners were very against it. And um, yet now we're in a situation where you can't say no anymore. Um, and I'm sure you're so glad that you didn't have to go through the growing pains that many of those firms had to do in the first several weeks of this, um, because you'd already gone out and tried to pilot and test this idea, and you'd gotten through some of the growing pains early on, and so that you were already established to be able to do this. I think, and I'm speculating widely, but I think that this will grow in acceptance and um, will become more normal, you know, within the next 10 years. I mean, I could imagine that this is the beginning of a new model of practice that will catch on. And I could see a lot more types of firms adopting this in the long run. But right now it feels new and foreign and maybe like a little bit uncomfortable for a lot of people. But I do think that, you know, other industries have been able to do this and a and adapt to it. So there, to me, there's no reason that architects can't. Yeah. Yeah, I, I agree. I think there's going to be a lot more virtual work and a lot more hybrids. And I think a lot more exploration into if we're virtual, are there other ways that we can support one another um, physically? I mean, the, it doesn't have to be just like completely virtual or completely brick and mortar. Um, I think there are a lot of opportunities for testing out different models or looking at like, you know, little hubs of places in different areas or being more flexible with co-working spaces or, you know, or then looking at communities and how are we even designing communities and suburban areas and residential areas? Are we really looking at designing in a different way for people in general? maybe neighborhoods become mixed use and there are sort of these co-working zones within residential neighborhoods. I think there's just a lot of like really interesting things to think about beyond our own industry um, and how does life and work change so that we can get back to focusing on things that really should matter. You actually have talked about, or you mentioned several times just over in this conversation about growing your practice to a much bigger practice do you actually think it's easier to scale a virtual practice and a physical practice? Because I feel like so many, so many of the practices that are out there that are looking at transitioning to virtual are the small and medium sized firms. But you have much bigger hopes and dreams. So, you know, what do you see as any concerns or, or even opportunity as a virtual practice to, to scale? And is there really limitations? This is a really like great and probably complex <laughs> question um, that deserves a, a longer and more thoughtful answer than I can give. Um, I don't I don't know what the challenges are going to be scaling to that size. I think in the beginning it's easier. We have more access to people, uh, and so growing a team has been really a pleasure for me. I, I love hiring. Um, and bringing in people to the systems that we already have is, is 
is also pretty simple. We, we just add another user and plop them in and there they go. But I think there probably will be a point where it feels like so many people in so many different places and spread all over the country or the world. And how do you feel like you have a sense of place and home there? It's, it's, it's really hard for me to fathom. I can think about my team. I know where they are. I can picture where they are in their homes or their different states and what their experiences are like and how we sort of connect to one another. I can see that. If there are 500 people, I, I think I'm, you know, for me, that's more of a personal question about how do I manage growing into a much larger firm and, and what is that like and what does that mean? Um, so I, yeah, I think operationally there may be a lot more things that are quite easier, uh, but culturally for a much larger practice, you're separated, of course, into different spaces, but those are much smaller. And so you have the benefit of creating place and community within that particular location in a much larger virtual firm. How do you, how do you decide how to create those like smaller little pockets of culture um, and not feel like you're alienating people or siloing people? So I do, I think that's a really challenging, uh, important thing that I'll let you know in <laughs> five or 10 years how it's going. <laughs> But it's, but it's not, I would say it's not, it's not dissimilar from what I hear when like, you know, people always t- like kind of talk about like how big they want their firm to get to. And then there's that threshold, right? Of like what happens after we become more than 40 people or, you know, even in tech, we talk about like the startup mentality and the culture that's created within a small group of people that are constantly working together in a physical space and how that how that cultural shifts, like when you get a, a beyond 100 people, or now you're even living on two floors instead of one, um, and you're not running into the same people that you always ran into every day. So anyways, it's an interesting kind of correlation for me to draw that like, what you think about as you scale is actually kind of similar in a way. But I mean, I guess I would argue that a virtual practice is scalable. Um, the challenges are are similar, but just like different. So Leah, if someone was interested in starting or more permanently transitioning into a virtual practice, what advice would you give them? I would say stop thinking about your practice like you have been for the past 10, 20, 30 years. Don't try to force what you've been doing into what you've adopted in the short term, thinking that it would only be short term. I think that's that's really the mistake uh, and the challenges that I've seen where there was this mad dash to go remote and people had to do things very quickly in order for their company to survive and have just sort of been working with that and hobbling along and evolving with that system, hoping that they can go back to the way things were before. And so there's this like, you know, this is a necessity of what we're doing now, but I think also this idea that I don't really want to do this. I miss what we've been doing. If you really do want to go permanently and transition into a virtual practice, you have to fully embrace that idea and what that means and allow yourself to be open to the opportunities of completely stripping things down and looking at doing things differently than you have before. Um, again, invest in systems. Like that's, that's huge. Think about the systems that you had. Think about if you want to maintain that, what does that really look like if it's done correctly? 
um, take time to invest in doing it the right way up front. You know, there is this opportunity cost to having carried on and sort of patching things over time. And if you continue on in that, you are going to lose out on a lot in the long run. Um, if you don't sit down and sort of evaluate what's working, what's not working, what do we really want to do long term and and stop and really set it up from there. So I, I think that's like the biggest the biggest thing that needs to be done, both operationally, but also culturally. You know, you can't expect that same culture to carry on in the same way. You can maintain what your culture is, but you have to support it differently. You have to find ways to cultivate and support that in a virtual environment. Um, so it's it's not really necessarily like this is this is a formula for how to be successful in virtual practice. It's just be intentional, think about it, invest in that time now if you want it to be permanent, and talk to your team and put together a task force and start building out how you're going to actually create a virtual practice. So if you happen to hear uh, Daniel Tiger or Doc McStuffins in the background, it's because. I just wanted to mention to our listeners that my three-year-old daughter is in the room since she is, I want to say she's going through a phase, but she's actually never left this phase where she wants to be near me all the time. It feels very appropriate that on episode that we're talking about working from home, your daughter is your studio buddy this evening. And I have to say, I've heard a lot of stories from friends about balancing that the act of parenting and working in the age of COVID. But during this whole season of recording with you, it's been really impressive to watch you take that on in real time with both of your kids and then working and recording. So kudos, Evelyn. Thank you. But Janine, you've also admittedly have started recording sessions at midnight to work around my schedule. So thank you for that as well. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> no worries. This topic is really actually top of mind for me, especially with another tech, tech giant. So Microsoft announced this week that they are also making the move to a remote-friendly workforce and allowing their employees to choose to be permanently remote. So one of the things that actually really stood out to me in that conversation with Leah was the intentionality with which she developed her firm's culture, but also the development of the individuals within practice. And she talked about the value of mutual mentorship, which was interesting to me uh, and a way to begin to bridge a gap that I've heard a lot of firm principals be concerned about uh, with this forced move to remote work. So uh, the general consensus is that they're less concerned about the people that have been at their firm for a while, but they're more concerned about the development of some of their younger employees, which they see as individuals that need a, a little more, I would say, in-person handholding. I can see that. And I think it's clear that transitioning into a remote work work style requires a willingness to do things differently. Um, so there's you know, I'm what I'm hearing in what you just said is there's a maybe a issue of trust with people who've been there long enough that they understand how the work policies work. And so they're able to go remote with the trust that they'll get the work done. And then perhaps younger staff, while they may be able to do the remote work, there could be issues around them not knowing the culture of the firm or the policies of the office and um, needing a little extra one on one attention to get direct feedback from their managers. 
like anything, there's going to be pros and cons when you take on something new. And there's going to be moments of success as well as bumps in the road. And I've heard some of my friends report that they love working remotely and they really hope that their design studios don't go back to a a five-day-a-week office environment. And on the other end, I've heard friends say that they don't enjoy remote working um, and that they are eager to go back. In fact, my husband actually decided to go back and he sits socially distanced across the studio from his um, bosses. But... um, he prefers it that way. He feels more comfortable being in the office. And I've noticed that a lot of firm owners seem to be the first ones back in their office entirely. To me, the lesson that everyone can kind of focus on is that in order to do anything new, there has to be a general acceptance of letting go of old norms to make space for new norms. If you're mentally stuck on an idea that it's not the way it was 12 months ago, then you're going to have a much harder time if you can't let go of that mindset and adopt a mindset and willingness to adapt. Right. And I think there's absolutely benefits to a remote practice and or, or a virtual practice. And one of the greatest benefits is uh, the ability to expand the talent pool, right? Um, so a lot of tech companies see remote work as an opportunity to hire somebody who, given their circumstances, whatever they may be, they might be not be able to be in a position to relocate, or it's you know actually just too expensive to pay people what they need to pay to um, to be as 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 well off in a city like San Francisco than it is living in other parts of the country. So this is very true of a virtual practice. Um, It really means that you can hire the right person you need for your company, independent of where they live or how expensive it is to live in the city where you are currently based out of. Another issue that Leah raised was about treating employees equitably And actually what we're talking about and this topic that she brought up really raises this idea of that there are a lot of different opinions in an office environment about how people should do things. And just because senior level manager has an opinion doesn't mean it's the best way to do things or just because someone else has a different opinion. um, Again, it doesn't mean it's the right way to do it. A lot of different people have ideas about what is fair and how things should be done. You know, some managers live by the rule that there's a series of rules that everyone follows, and in their minds, this makes things equal. However, there are other management styles out there that look at individuals on a more case-by-case basis to offer employees support where they need it in order to get them to do their best work. And Evelyn, you gave the, um, I think, the example in the interview about the start time, like there being a definitive start time to the day. Um, And I think another example is this kind of concept around power inequity that's present in a management and employee relationship. This can create huge barriers in communication that make it hard for individuals to even voice their concerns, let alone hold their managers accountable. Yeah, so for me, one of the most important takeaways from this particular conversation is that in order to be successful in this mode of working, um, you really have to abandon how you practice beforehand. 
especially whether it's coming to practicing virtually or in a hybrid. It's not a matter of this is how we did things previously and finding a one one fix to convert it to a virtual practice, but rather it's a reassessment of how and why you did everything the way it was done previously, how relevant it is to the success of the project, and you know, is there a different approach altogether that is better than how it was done before? Um, it's it's not a here's here's something, um, and this is how we do it in a virtual space. I also want to reiterate this idea about defining processes and eliminating inefficiencies. You know, we've also talked about this some previous episodes, and while each building that um, an architect will design is going to inherently have um, different problems to solve, it will require different skills. There'll be maybe some different processes involved, um, and there'll be a discovery process towards a unique path for that building. But I agree with Leah that in a firm setting, emphasis on creating processes creates clarity for your employees. And that's the big idea. Think of it as leaving like breadcrumbs for others to follow. Without guidelines or communication or access to information, a lot of time gets wasted in re-explaining, re-educating, correcting wrong work and wasting time on things that just don't matter. Yeah, I think there's a lot of articles that I've been looking at um, for my job, but just in general about not being able to undo the current state of work, right? That going forward, we will inevitably be practicing in some to- in some type of hybrid matter, if not virtually altogether. And before I think anyone settles too much into this new norm, you know, and ultimately find themselves struggling when things are back to what we consider business as usual, that we need to take the time to consider if the band-aids that we put in place when we quickly had to adopt and move to virtual and remote work are just that. Are they just band-aids? Or are you really practicing in a way that can scale and operationalize when things get back to normal to really make your practice successful? So for those of you that are actually considering a move to hybrid operations or moving from brick and mortar to something more virtual on a permanent basis, or even starting your own business as a virtual practice and could use some guidance, Leah and I are considering creating a course on practice of architecture. So if this is something that would be of interest to you to learn more about starting your own virtual practice, please do not hesitate to email me at Evelyn at practiceofarchitecture.com and let us know what you would like to learn. Thank you for listening and be sure to tune in next week for an extra special guest. Thanks for joining us on Practice Disrupted, a podcast by Practice of Architecture. Visit us at practicedisrupted.com to find out more about future episodes and the changing nature of practice. This show is part of the Gable Media Podcast Network, You can learn more about other podcasts in our community by visiting gablmedia.com. If you enjoy the show and want to hear more content like this, you can help us by leaving a rating, review, and subscribing on your favorite podcast app. Don't forget to share with your friends and feel free to let us know what other topics or speakers you're interested in hearing about. Thanks for listening and see you next week.